we're, we're currently in this study, things that I wish Jesus never had said. And uh, I, I, there's a lot of those things. There's a lot of those things in the scriptures. And uh, I'm sure that we have the temptation to do what we just saw up there. Literally just go through and or mark them out. Of course, most of us don't go marking up our Bibles like that. But we really do the same thing when we just don't put it into practice. But see, when Jesus was teaching, he was, he was amazing. And he created a stir because he said things that, that just were so different and things that were, were hard. They were hard to understand and uh, they were hard, maybe even harder to do. But he was amazing. And I think that's why he began to draw crowds. We're going to get right into our passage this morning. So the ushers are going to come forward. And if you need a Bible to follow along with, uh, just raise your hand up. The ushers are going to come by. And they will give you one, and you're welcome to take that Bible with you. But when Jesus, when he would gather around, he would begin teaching. He, he one time gathered a group of people together, and he gave one of his greatest sermons ever. In fact, they call it the Sermon on the Mount, and it covers Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And if you're wanting to just do some good reading this week, read through 5 and 7 of Matthew, and I promise you it is going to inspire and change your life. Now, our passage comes right there at the beginning of this. It is Matthew chapter 5, verse 28 through 30. Jesus, with this crowd assembled, says to them, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose just one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Well, I I think this is something that's easy enough to understand. I mean, Jesus says that if something is causing you to sin, you're simply to cut it off. And we could really put this into practice right now. I I could get my Ginsu knife out. It will cut a hammer of you could cut a you know a hammerhead and then tomatoes and it'll slice right through it. We could have the the ushers you know nurses. We could be right here if there's an appendage that is causing you to sin. Come forward. We're not going to cross out our Bible. But of course, that's not what happened in the early church, and that's what what we're going to do here today. Jesus is speaking in what we call hyperbole. He's he's exaggerating. But even though he is exaggerating, and even though he is is kind of giving this surprise, extreme statement, we can't just toss it out. I mean, as I read through this, and I I prayed about it, and I said, God, show me what the truth is of this scripture. Help me to reveal this. I keep coming back to this, this choice that Jesus made of telling people to gouge out their eyes and cut off their hands. I mean, how, how grotesque that is. And I want to know, why did he choose that? Why did he choose that way to describe it? And so I thought, well, maybe I ought to find out what is involved with cutting off your hand. So I started to do a little research, and I came across this man here named Aaron Ralston. He wrote a, an autobiography called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. And maybe you have heard his story uh, in 2003, in the spring of 2003, Aaron, who is an avid hiker and uh, mountain climber and uh, an engineer, he loves to figure out problems, he uh, went on this hike in, blue, uh, in the Blue Canyon of Utah. It's one of the most remote areas, but he really wasn't doing anything that, that was that dangerous. It was more of just a regular hike. 
And, uh, of course, in the process, he ends up cutting off his hand. Now, that day, he went out. He, he had all he had like a, two burritos, I think, some water. He had a flashlight. And then he had a multi-use tool that came free with the flashlight. So you can imagine what kind of a, a tool this was. And so he's out, and he climbs over this one area, and he has to stand on this boulder. And while he's standing on the boulder, he kind of you know, shakes a little bit, but it, it, it seems firm enough. So he stands on it, and the thing gives way. He drops down. He's between this rock crevice. This boulder, an 800-pound boulder, starts to just wobble back and forth as it works its way down like a marble banging back and forth. And so he's trying to kind of push it out of the way, and it crunches one side of his hand, and then he has the other hand, and, and that hand ends up getting pinned. And there he is, stuck between a rock and a hard place, his hand pinned. And as I thumbed through this book, I didn't read the whole thing, but I wanted to know... When did it first dawn on him that he was going to have to cut off his hand? How did that, what was that like? What went through his mind? And I literally got that excerpt right here. He says, uh, without enough water to wait for rescue, without a pick to crack the boulder, without an anchor, I have only one possible course of action. I speak slowly out loud. You're going to have to cut your arm off. Hearing the words makes my instincts and emotions revolt. My vocal cords tense and my voice changes octaves. But I don't want to cut off my arm. Aaron, you're going to have to cut off your arm. I realized I'm arguing with myself, and I yield to a half-hearted chuckle. This is crazy. Now, when I read this in this book, the thing that shocked me is you've got to remember that, that Aaron was out there for about six days, when do you think he came to this point where he realized he was going to have to cut his arm off? It was after two hours of being stuck. Two hours of being stuck, he decides, I have to cut my arm off. He doesn't actually do it till five, six days later. It's a pretty hard thing to cut off your arm, to follow through with that kind of a decision. All right. So Jesus comes out with this passage. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand, right hand, your most important hand, the hand of honor, it's because it's your right. If it causes you to sin, cut it off. All right, the first question I have, what's the big deal about sin? In fact, what what is sin? What is Jesus talking about here that is so great that that if something causes me to do it, I I need to cut it off. I need to get rid of it. I mean, we talking like murder and adultery. Are we talking about just some things that are going to get me in a lot of trouble and have just these far, vast and, and high-reaching uh, consequences. What about like gossip and flattery? I mean, th- those are sins as well. What, what about those? Or, or what about just, you know, going on vacation and playing golf a couple Sundays in a row and not showing up to church? I mean, is that, is that what we're talking about? What exactly is this sin? Jesus, you know, he may be speaking with hyperbole, but we cannot miss the point. Clearly what Jesus is saying is that whatever sin is, is so bad, so desperate, so terrible, that we got to go to extreme measures to get rid of it. Well, the the word sin is is hamartian. And sin literally, the the word that is used there, it has a, a meaning in the original language. And it means to miss the target, to like fall short. That is literally what that word means. And today, uh, if you were into archery 
and you are shooting at the target, but you miss your one ring out, then you're at sin one. If you miss two rings out, you're sin two. So that's literally the picture of what Jesus is laying out here, is that he says, hey, if you're missing the target, well, what target? You see, God, when he created this world, when he, in his vast imagination, decided to, to put all this stuff together, he had something in mind. He had a purpose and a plan for his creation. And thereby, he had a purpose and a plan for you and I. And so when we go and we operate outside of that, we miss the target of what he had in mind in the first place. Now, the beautiful thing is that God, one of the, one of the scriptures says that God is love. And because God is love and God wants us to love, you can't have love in a controlled environment, can you? Like if I come over and I, and I basically like forced my wife to date me and marry me, that's not really love, you know, if she had no choice. But if she has a choice, then that's, then that's love. So God gives each one of us this choice. He says, you have the choice to match the target, to become exactly what I have pictured you to be, to, to expand the, the far reaches of what I have imagined for you. Or you can choose to do things your own way. You can choose your own path. Sin, if you really boil it down, sin is like a piano that is out of tune. It's like a basketball team that doesn't know what it's doing on the court. I went to University of Kansas. When Kansas was playing North Carolina, that was a team that was out of sync on the court. We mauled them. I'm very proud to say I can hold my head high now that I've moved to North Carolina, thanks to that, that one win. But that's the picture. It's like a grocery cart that you get, and that wheel's just kind of bobbing around, and you can't hardly... That's what sin is. An engine redlining, a stripped screw, a poorly designed machine... Clashing outfits. This is the sin that my wife accuses me of all the time. But you get the picture. Sin is when something is not right. It's out of sync. It's out of order with what it is ultimately meant to be, what its ultimate purpose is. All right. Okay, so what? So that's what sin is. So something's a little bit out of order. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that sin ultimately destroys life. Sin is a destroyer. You know, Jesus once said these words. He said, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Right? He throws out this word called hell. Now, when you begin to sin, and you're oper- we know that anything, you operate your car, you don't change the oil, guess what happens? Your car dies early, right? Or it doesn't work properly. But Jesus goes on and he describes this place called hell. Now, I don't have to tell you about hell. I mean, doesn't everybody know exactly what hell is? Uh, it's terrible. It's, somebody said jail. That's a great analogy of it. Uh, another thing, I, I mean, I, the first picture I get is, of course, who lives in hell? The devil. And he's down there with a pitchfork, and there's all these flames around there, and he tempts people, and then they come down, and he throws them in a little prison. And then, of course, you, are, you, just, you spend the rest of eternity burning in this fiery pit. I mean, everybody knows what hell is. But I'll tell you what. When Jesus first said these words, and he said them to that audience, and he referred to hell, that's not the picture that the original audience had. Because that's actually not the word that Jesus used. Jesus used the word Gehenna. And when the Jews of that day heard Gehenna, they didn't think of some far-off spiritual place. In fact, their nose crinkled up immediately because they knew where Gehenna was. Gehenna was just the local trash dump of Jerusalem. It was just, that's all it was. It was a trash dump. Now, I don't know how many of you know this, but 
our LifePoint uh, offices are located on Durant Road, which happens to be right by the trash dump for Raleigh. In fact, I think they just closed it down. But on days like today where it gets close to 100 and all that trash just starts to, you know, do its thing, you get that smell. Yeah, that's what the Jews, they, they knew Gehenna. If you had gone out to Gehenna in that time, they didn't have the luxury of bulldozers to, to put the stuff under. So you're hit by the smell of rotting flesh. And of course, there is smoke and there is fire there. Why? Well, how do you get rid of trash if you don't have a bulldozer? You burn it. But here's the other thing. Gehenna actually had a population of people who lived there. It was their home. They were the thieves. They were the the murderers. They were those running from the law. They were the outcasts. They were those who had been abandoned and separated from the the warmth of the hearth and the community of Jerusalem and all that meant to be part of the Jewish culture at the time. That is the picture of hell, a place that you're alone, separated. You know, for me, what was really amazing as I kind of thumbed through this book is that Aaron, he, uh, I, I don't really gather that he necessarily is a church-going person. I, maybe he is. But um, as he was going through this process describing his time, he was there for six days. On the fifth day, he's been without water, without food, basically up for most of the time. And he begins to uh, go into these trances and he, he, he has almost like out-of-body experiences. And some of them are just really these positive experiences, almost like a, a near-death experience where he sees loved ones and, and he's floating along and there's this really positive feel. But I, just, I want you to hear just his description of what it was like that day as he went through these experiences and what it was like to come back and be where he was at and fully take in the f- fullness of his situation. He says, In the piercing brutality of night, I repeatedly escape into trances, but they melt from my memory the moment I return to the canyon. If heaven turns out to be as comfortable as these trances, then what I return to in the canyon is nothing short of hell. Now, hell is conventionally portrayed as a crowded, infernally hot place, you know, Milton's Pandorium, ruled by a horned devil overseeing the torture of lost souls. Well, I know better now. Hell is indeed a deep, thonic hole, but hot? No, it is a bitterly dark and unbearably cold place of lonely solitude in an Arctic prison without a warden and but one abandoned inmate, forsaken even by the supposed ringleader of the underworld. There is no other spiritual energy, good or evil, on which to project your love or your hatred. There is only one emotion in hell, unmitigated despair wrapped in abject loneliness. Wow. What a description. You know, I, I know there's a lot of people that don't believe that there really is a place called hell. I know that, that they just say that's, that's just something that's been made up. I tell you what, if you search your heart, you know that that's not the truth. Oh, you know that there's a hell. I mean, you get a little taste of it. You see, hell really is the separation from God. It's getting exactly what you wanted. You don't want God to be in your life? You get that. And he is the very source of all things that are good, all things that are right. And so even right now, when we go out and we begin to sin, we begin to lie or we begin to cheat or we allow frustration and anger to rule our lives, what does it begin to do to you? 
I mean, doesn't it separate you? If you're lying and you're having to put on this image and you're not really who you say you are, don't you become lonely? Because the only person that people know is this fake projection. Nobody really knows the, only, the real you. And as you travel the path, you find that it is more lonely and more lonely and more lonely. That you've just, you've lost all touch with community and faith and all things that are good. Okay, so I get it. Sin's a terrible thing. Sin's a terrible place. Hell's a, a terrible place. And I want to have no part with it. But why does Jesus have to be so extreme? I mean, why this uh, cut off your hands and gouge out your eyes? You know, wouldn't it be better to say, okay, sin's a terrible thing. Slap your hand if it's causing you to sin. Or like stare at the sun if that eye is, is you know, a punishment, you know? Doesn't that sound a little bit better? Or uh, this is what I think. Shouldn't Jesus have like a, like a, a quit smoking plan for sin? You know, like the patch where you kind of do it over a, a process? Like Jesus says, okay, you know, you're out there, you're, you sell like 10 lies a day. You know, cut it back to eight and then six. And then, you know, over time, lie a little less. Or, you know, you're, you're having an affair right now and you're, you're meeting up with your other person like five times a week. Five, that'd be pretty exciting experience. But five times a week, well, maybe cut it back to three and then two and just kind of wean yourself off. Why does he have to be so radical? Why does he have to be so drastic? See, I, I think that part of the reason that Jesus is just so extreme with this is because sin is so radically invasive. Like you start to, to sin, you start to, to apt, act outside of God's target for your life, and it, and it gets easier, you become more accustomed to it. And just like a cancer that's grown in your arm, and, and it doesn't really hurt that much, you may notice every once in a while, but what's the doctor say? He says, I know it doesn't hurt really bad, but it is invasive. You, you need to have your arm removed if you're going to save your life because you've got sin working inside of you. It is a radical thing. And, and, and so he causes, he says, that we, he says, Jesus literally says that if it causes you to sin, that, that word that is used there, the Greek word, is skandalizo. Now, what English word do you think we get from skandalizo? Yeah, scandalous, scandal. It's exactly what it is. And the word literally means to entrap. It's like if this, if this thing out there that you need to cut off, it, it's going to trap you. And once you're trapped, it's like one of those fish that, you know, they kind of they swim in to get the bait into a little trap. And, of course, it's easy to swim in, but all those spikes that kind of surround it, fish can't get out again. You become ensnared. One of the things over the last two, three years that I unfortunately have really gotten a lot of experience with is affairs. Uh, the last place where I, I served, it just felt like there were couples, one after another, that were falling into affairs. And I, used, I just got to see every piece of it. And I know that there's some in this room. You've, you've been through an affair. You know exact, you're going to know exactly what I'm describing here. But I used to think that every affair was just like these random things and you couldn't explain it. But the more you hear these stories of how this stuff happens, you realize that, that there is a pattern to it. I mean, it, it's just, there's a way this stuff happens. It's almost scientific. I mean, it starts off with, with you know, somebody maybe getting on Facebook and they, they kind of go, you know, I remember I used to have this old high school fling. You know, I wonder, wonder what she's doing, what he's doing. So they get on there and lo and behold, there they are, right? And so they, they shoot him an email and, 
and uh, hey, what are you doing? Oh, you're, oh, you're married. You've got kids. Oh, they they're cute. Oh, you got a great family. Oh, yeah. My I, well, I got a promotion and this, and yeah, I've got a family as well. Oh, man, it was really good talking with you. And so, it, as innocent as could be, I mean, there's just this is there's nothing to this. And then they begin to talk some more, and and before they know it, it starts to feel really good to have this conversation, and and uh, they start reminiscing about some of the old times and. And some of those old feelings start coming back again. Or maybe if this is a first time, it, these new feelings, it's just it's exciting. And there's always a point. Happens in every one of these affairs. It's the line of demarcation where affection is demonstrated. It could be in a look. It could be in a really tight hug. It could be in something as simple as, you know, I really enjoy these conversations. This, this really makes me feel good. And then, of course, you begin to talk about your spouse and your, your current marriage and how things just aren't really going all that well. And then you, you're going to help one another with one another's marriages, right? Yeah, that's how it works. And then before you know it, it is just this inferno, the most exciting, wild experience that anybody's ever had. And you start living this double life. The fair takes on a life of its own. But again, like two locomotives steaming towards one another, they hit. And everything is destroyed. Families, lives, kids, Sometimes murder, domestic violence comes out of these. You see, that's the nature of sin. It's radically invasive. It's extremely dangerous. But you know, the thing about sin is that not only is it radically invasive, but I think that Jesus said that we're supposed to cut it off because think about it, gouging out your eye, cutting off your hand, pretty painful, right? I think it's a beautiful analogy because to cut off sin, to stop doing this stuff, is going to be extremely painful. I mean, think about it. Why were you engaging in something that, that your creator had not designed you for? Why, why would you go and do that? See, on some level, whatever you're engaging in is bringing you some pleasure, some type of release. Otherwise, you just quit doing it. And in fact, as you begin to think, through what that thing is that you know causes you to sin, there's going to be a party that goes, I know that this is wrong. I know that. I know I need to stop the relationship. I know I need to stop eating what I'm eating or going where I'm going or doing what I'm doing. And I will, but I can't do it today because I just, I need to relax. Or I just, I'm just, my life is so empty and I need something, some spark, some excitement. This is giving me that excitement right now. But Jesus says, that you are to cut yourself off. And here's an easy way, a framework to think of. You need to cut yourself off from people, places, and things. People, places, and things. You're going to need to cut yourself off from people. You know that old saying that bad company corrupts good morals? It's true. It does. And in fact, in the book of Proverbs, one of the books in the Bible that gives us wisdom literature and just good advice, Proverbs twenty two twenty four says, Do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. There's that scandalizo again. That's, that's snaring. Yeah, the people that you hang out with. You know, there are some people that you know, every time you hang out with them, you're going to end up gossiping. You're going to end up you know, saying all kinds of terrible things, and yet you keep hanging out with them. Or maybe there's somebody that you have a relationship with, and it's platonic right now, but you can tell inside, you know, that when you're around them, you kind of, 
you know, your heart beats a little faster. You know, when you're getting dressed in the morning, you, you find a, make sure that you look really good before you come into the office. Guess what? You need to cut yourself off from that person. And it's going to be hard. It is going to be hard personally. But you know what? The other person is going to be offended. How come you're not hanging out with me anymore? You know, you are so ridiculous. What, what do you think we're going to have an affair? And so you just, I just want to be friends. But you know better. You know yourself. You're going to have to cut yourself off from people. You also may have to cut yourself off from places. You know, there may be certain situations. They could be bars. They could be your path to work or back that goes by a liquor store. And every time you just know, you're just thinking about it. Or maybe you go on business trips. And in some of those business trips, they say, hey, we like to, we like to meet in really fun locations to talk business. And you go, I can't meet in those places. And they say, well, then we can't do business with you. This is going to cost you contract. Ah, pain. But Jesus says that's what it's going to be like. Maybe there's certain things that you need to cut yourself off from. Maybe you can't handle TV. Maybe some of you guys, you said, you know what, I'm not, I'm, I've, I've been able to stay away from the pornography on TV. I'm good there. But then you watch TV and you go, well, it's just, it's just you know, just a movie. But yet you know you're watching that movie because you enjoy a lot of those certain scenes. You may have to cut yourself off from those. Some of us foods. You know, there are certain foods out there that you, you, you know are going to be tempting to you. When we moved to North Carolina here about four weeks ago, before we got here, we made a rule. We said that that, that refrigerator, when we get it unpacked and we plug it in, it will never house a half gallon of ice cream. In fact, we talked about actually putting, like, I want to put a picture of ice cream with a little Ghostbuster sign through it just so that my wife and I both know that no ice cream can go in there. Now, now we've, part of our rule is we can go out to like Good Berries and get ice cream or people from the church want to take us out for Good Berries. We can do that. But we can't go and buy that ice cream and have it sitting in our refrigerator because we're just going to eat it. We're going to keep eating it until it's gone and then we'll go get some more and we keep eating it and ice cream will be the death of us, Okay. Maybe it's certain, maybe the thing that, that you need to cut yourself off from is certain, your car, your house. Maybe you have gotten a car or house that you know, you, you're a slave now. You just, you literally are a slave working to pay that stuff off. But yet you like it and it's a status symbol and you wonder what people would think about you if you had to get rid of it. Guess what? You got to cut yourself off. Sell it. Downsize. Or maybe it's certain places. Maybe one of them is, is like, you know, Target. You know, I'm, I know that my, my life group, when us guys got together, we literally conspired to burn down Target one time. <laughs> because you know what Target does. What is Target's Target? It's a middle-class housewife. It's a terrible place. It's where we go to get ice cream. You know, where's this ice cream from? It comes from Target. So we can go to Food Lion, we can go to Walmart. We are not going to Target anymore. I wish. If you guys could help talk my wife into that, that would be wonderful. Here's another thing. It may be your kids' activities. Uh, you know how that is? Your kids are in sports activities, and every year, I mean, they become less leisure activities and more work. You know, you got three or four practices. And, and you know, of course, those coaches, though, they always will work with you if your son or daughter needs to, like, miss a practice to come to a church activity, hang out with Todd at the youth group. Or, you know, of course, they say, hey, yeah, your, your son will still be first team. Yeah. It's going to be painful. You know how this goes. Maybe that's what it is. But whatever it is, whatever that thing is, 
you've got to cut yourself off. Now, there's a lot of churches out there that are really, you know, they, they say, okay, we've just given you this. Let me tell you what it is. Now, you guys can't ever have a drink. You can't go to movies. You can't. I know one church, they said that you can have a TV, but only two in the house. And then our elders are going to come by and check on you. Make sure, you know. Okay? Did Jesus say that here? Maybe that would be helpful. But, but Jesus just said, hey, if something's causing you to sin, cut it off. You know what that means is you are going to have to make that choice. And maybe for some of you, it's a beer. You know, you, you cannot have one beer because one beer is eight beers. Other of you, you, you can go out and have a beer and it's just, you, you have one, you don't even get tipsy. You, you, it's no big deal. Some of you can watch movies, others of you can't. But what you're going to have to do, if you truly want to experience what God has blessed and, and God's plan for you, if you obey his teaching here, you're going to have to go to him in humility and honesty and say, God, where is that area in my life that I have got to cut myself off from? And when he reveals it to you, and I promise you, if you go to him and you ask in sincerity, he will. It'll come. You'll know. You'll feel this, this pressure like, oh, I know what it is. I don't want it to be that. But if you do that, your life is going to, to turn in a direction that you just is beyond your, your wildest dreams. But it will be painful. It will hurt. You know, Paul, when he was writing to this church in Galatia, he once told them, he says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's what the process is. Yeah, it's going to hurt. It will hurt. It will be painful. All right, if you're going to go through all this pain, though, and you're really going to cut sin out of your life, you're going to travel this new path, what's the benefit? Why go through all of this? Why go through all of this if it's just nothing but pain every day? You see, the truth is, is that when you cut out sin from your life, you are suddenly going to be an instrument in perfect tune, working with a symphony. You're going to become a simple painting that is able to communicate deep and, and, and almost magical communication. You are going to become like Michael Jordan. When he used to, you know when Michael Jordan used to say that, that he'd get in the zone and he would be coming down the court and he could just see how the play was going to unfold? And when you begin to cut sin out, that's what's going to happen. It's almost like you're just in this, you're in the moment, you're in sync, you're listening to the Spirit, God's moving you, things begin to come into the place and you find yourself at the right times, at the right moments for exactly what God wants you to do and it will just give you, just give you chills to walk that path. Jesus said that if we remove sin, if we cut off the flesh, he said these words, he says, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And then a little bit farther back in, in, the, in the book of John, he says, if the son, he's talking about himself, if the son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. This man who comes with these hard sayings, with these radical things, says that if you put it into practice and you suffer the pain and you go through whatever hardship it requires, I will give you life like you've never experienced and I will give you a freedom that you just come bursting, bursting forth from. You know, as I, as I went through this book and I listened and I, I was just kind of you know, honing in, there was one passage I was hunting for. One passage. I wanted to know what was going through Aaron's mind that moment that he cut his flesh off. 
that very moment when he is actually doing those final slices, what is he thinking about? I mean, this is a guy who loves to climb. I mean, is he thinking, I'm I'm about ready to just lose my arm. I'm never going to be able to climb like this again. I'm never going to be able to do these things. What went through his mind? Was it just great loss and travesty and and pain because of, of, of of separating himself from his own appendage? Listen right here to the account of a dying man who is cutting off his hand to try to save his life. It is 11.32 a.m., Thursday, May 1st, 2003. For the second time in my life, I am being born. This time I am being delivered from the canyon's pink womb where I have been incubating. This time I am a grown adult. And I understand the significance and the power of this birth as none of us can when it happens the first time. The value of my family, my friends, and my passions, they well up a heaving rush of energy that is like the burst I get approaching a hard-earned summit multiplied by 10,000. Pulling tight the remaining connective tissues of my arm, I rock the knife against the wall and the final thin strand of flesh tears loose. Tensile force rips the skin apart more than the blade cuts it. A crystalline moment shatters, and the world is a different place. Where there was confinement, now there is release. Recoiling from my sudden liberation, my left arm flings down canyon, opening my shoulders to the south, and I fall back against the northern wall of the canyon, my mind surfing on euphoria. And as I stare at the wall where not 12 hours ago, I etched in that stone, rest in peace, October 75, Aaron, April 03. A voice shouts in my head, I am free. If we are willing to put his words into practice. If we're willing to to cut ourselves off from that sin that wants to enclose us and entrap us against a rock and hard place, we will experience the freedom and the joy and the life that Jesus has in store for us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your words are faithful, your words are true. You sent down your son so that he could teach us truth, that he could be truth for us. And he said such hard things, such painful things, things that would be so easier to just read past and to walk out of here and say, no, I don't want to do that because I just, I really don't believe that what he says is really true. I want to just mark it out, black it out of my life, and out of my mind. But I ask in this moment right now, that you would give all of us the courage to cut off that thing that threatens to entrap us. And that because of our taking that hard step, that we'd be able to experience all of the joy and the freedom and the life that you offer. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.